Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Hello, my name is David Obelts. I'm the Chief Content Officer for Malcontent News. Thank you for listening to the Russia-Ukraine War Report Podcast. I am here with Zorina Zabruski. She is our new executive producer and co-host for the podcast as we reboot. Zonina, thank you so much for joining me today from Odessa. Yes. Hi, David. Uh, very good to hear from you. Very good to meet the audience. And I am excited and looking forward to our new show. Tell me, first of all, what is your connection to Ukraine? At the moment and for the last um, about 19 months, and actually before the full-scale aggression, I've been based in Ukraine, in Odessa, traveling all around Ukraine during the uh, invasion, uh, working here as a reporter. That really helped me to get to know Ukraine uh, much better than I ever knew it and love it even more. My connection with this country goes very deep. Uh, my ancestors on both sides uh, were Ukrainian Jews and Ukrainians. I did find my great-grandfather's building in a day. It's only 20 minutes walk from the place where I live now and the place I call my home. Uh, my great-grandparents uh, were murdered by the Nazis, and they are most likely in Babin Yar mass grave. As a child, I used to spend a lot of time in Odessa in summers. These are my first warm best memories, really. I also, as a child, have been to Truskovets and Crimea. So it's a very long and meaningful relationship for me. So being somewhere else when the country of my childhood and the country of my ancestors is being brutally attacked turned out to be pretty impossible. And it took several months for me from February to April to get the accreditation from the Ministry of Defense. They do a pretty good check on you. There's uh, security services. And while I was waiting, it, it was excruciating, David. Once I got it and I got here, there was a sense of purpose. As you just said, you've been in Ukraine since moment one. You got your press credentials in April of 2022. What have you been covering, right? What is your portfolio? Great question. I had a lot of experience of covering the information warfare, David. I've been writing for Byline Times ever since Byline Times became a newspaper, and it's a popular newspaper in England. I wrote for them in a capacity of the information warfare expert. The reason I know this area is not because I particularly love it. On the contrary, I actually hate it. I did part of my growing, other than Ukraine, in Russia, in St. Petersburg. There were not very many choices at the time. It was still the USSR. And being Jewish, I wasn't allowed to travel and I wasn't allowed to leave the country. And the course that I was taking in St. Petersburg State University was in literature. Uh, my specialty was in English and American literature. I wrote my thesis in William Blake, The Sons of Innocence and Experience. But in order to graduate, they, the, the administration of the university, made you take a certain course. It was a classified course called Combat Propaganda. Of course, at the time, we were a bunch of very young girls who were not interested in any of these matters. So we basically kind of slapped through the course because it was the, at the very end of the Soviet Union and it was already fairly relaxed. I recognized those very tricks, David, in 2014 in the streets of San Francisco. I left Russia as soon as I could which was in 1998. And I lived happily in San Francisco, in California, and it was brutal awakening. And I started to speak about it publicly. 
saying that, look, Russians are trying to brainwash America and Russians are trying to brainwash the West. And of course, it was dismissed, as you would know, and many uh, in our audience who spotted it early on at the time that wasn't a very popular point of view. Even in 2016, when the Kremlin stood behind Trump, and during the campaign, social media became infested. And I feel that even at the moment, the, the whole scale of the operation is not known. I spent part of my life writing articles about it, speaking on different radio shows about it, teaching a course on the Russian combat propaganda in San Francisco and New York. So that is one big part of my coverage even here during the conventional war in Ukraine, because I still see this operation everywhere I go. For instance, when I go reported, say, in the newly liberated area last year, right, I went to the Kharkov Oblast, I was finding the Russian propagandist newspapers, Z papers. Yeah. Uh, and I was seeing the results of their brainwashing efforts, interviewing people. And uh, there's a lot of this material that is out. Part of that got featured in the film, in the documentary film called Under the Deadly Skies, the Terror and Torture in Ukraine. And it is also known under the title Eastern Front, Terror and Torture in Ukraine. And we were traveling to Donbass, to Kherson, and among our subjects, our topics that we covered were the torture and the Russian effort to erase Ukrainian identity, in addition to trying to erase Ukraine physically, which we showed. That, that never leaves any of my work. That's all, always a focus. But apart from that, of course, living in a place which gets attacked on a nightly basis where air raids are reality, you wake up to it, you go to bed with an raid, interviewing internally displaced people, refugees uh, from places like Mariupol, or visiting the places that are liberated in Donbass, interviews with the military, interviews uh, with the city authorities, I interviewed the mayor of Mykolaiv, the mayor of Odessa, the mayor of Mariupol, actually very interesting interview, still working on it. Uh, authorities in Bucha, I did a very special visit after the liberation of Chernobyl. You were one of the first journalists into Chernobyl, correct? After After it was cleared of the Russians. One of very few. It was very, very hard to get in. I have met many wonderful people who are eager to deliver their stories. And she was there when it happened. And she's there with her children who survived. And some of their friends did not. And right there, there on the side, she's telling us, please tell them what you've seen. It just feels like this is the purpose, this is the duty. I, I do, I cover a lot of culture. Everything is a story here, David. One thing I wanted to circle back on, you were talking about Russia propaganda efforts in the United States, and I have a personal antidote on this. I was having a sleep study done, and it was on the same day that they had the, the meteor explode over central eastern Russia. Broke all the windows, was on dash cams. And for people who've never had a sleep study done, you're in like a hotel bedroom because they want you to be comfortable, but it has all the medical stuff. So it's got a big TV and everything. And much like a hotel, it just has basic cable. And I'm just flipping through channels. And they had RT, Russia Today. I had never watched Russia Today for one second of my life. They were wall-to-wall -wall coverage about this meteor explosion. And so that was my intro to that. And so afterwards, I watched a couple more times and I saw things I was like, wow, this is pretty good. But I, I can't remember what it was that I watched, but I saw something and the writer, journalist, and me, the alarm bell went off. I'm getting manipulated. I'm getting pulled into a funnel here and I know it and I could see it. And I am not watching this channel ever again. And I'm going to start warning people do not watch RT. This is dangerous, dangerous stuff.
And right you were, uh, because RT was created with that particular purpose in mind. Uh, Margarita Simonian, who's the chief editor, uh, she studied combat propaganda and she studied it well and in depth and she uses it as an officer. And one of many reasons I know it for one thing, I recognize it and it's not that difficult, but I also did um, nine months of research on RT and Sputnik. That uh, research, unfortunately, never was released by the company for which I worked with a group of journalists because they were, the company got threatened by the Kremlin and um, their lawyers did, decided not to go for it. So it was very hard to get released from this company. And it got published eventually in Byline Times. They're the tactics playbook of um, the Russian propaganda. Uh, RT and Sputnik, a number of other channels, are a part of the propaganda empire. And they are funded directly from the Kremlin. They get their instructions directly from the Kremlin. If anybody in our audience still makes a mistake of watching any of these channels, I would really warn against it because they are done by people who spend their whole life working in this sphere. And they use the brainwashing techniques that are not immediately obvious. And they can do a lot of damage. What has been the single hardest story that you've done in your time in Ukraine? That's a hard question, David, because I think we're the mass grave in a Zoom. You see the bodies, and I'm not going to go graphic on you, of the smell, of the scent, of the order that affects you at the mass grave. Uh, I interview the survivors of the Russian torture, and sometimes I do it on site. So we go, say, in the basement or in the prison where they were tortured, and it's very hard. Uh, but it needs to be done because otherwise these records will not stay uh, in history. I, I'm hoping, I said it many times, and I hope that there will be tribunals. And I hope that my material and the eyewitness stories that I collect will be used as evidence when Putin and his um, generals, his militaries and his criminals are put on trial. That's my hope. So. It's hard, but it needs to be done. And number three, uh, the expedition to collect dead bodies in the mine fields um, near Kharkov. The war is um, something that gives you a different angle on mortality to the extent that your own doesn't become uh, that important at all anymore. But it also produces a lot of, um, a lot of, physical bodies and they need to be handled and that is something that people shy away from but it's an important issue that needs to be covered during the war so that's hard what is the one thing that you feel right now that people outside of ukraine you and i talked before i don't like referring to the west right because i feel that ukraine is part of the west i don't want to compartmentalize them out of that but what is it, the one thing that people outside of Ukraine don't get? They're not getting it. I don't even want to say that they don't get something. People who haven't been here and people who haven't been in Ukraine during the full-scale invasion don't have resources to process this experience. What is perceived as normal, like a nice summer day, a beach with kids running around and playing and dogs jumping into the sea and the reality of the war that interperses this reality. So if you look at it, you would know that there is a war going on. But if you live it, you see that the, the water is limited because right behind the line, there are mines and it's dangerous. And we still have accidents when the mine would travel to the area that is separated. Uh, you'll see that there are many men and sometimes women missing their limbs. You see a lot of people in uh, 
military uniform because they are here just to see their families for two days or three days before they return back to fight. And then all of a sudden there would be an air raid and there is this howling sound and you will see that people are so used to it that they don't pay any attention and the kids continue playing while there is a terrible rockers going on and then there might be a drone or missile intercepted and hit over everybody's head and people are so used to it that they would just take a selfie and continue with their daily activities and then there would be some from other areas who would have a panic attack but it's not usually seen in public as much and then if you listen to people talking you'll hear that 80 percent of the chatter is about the war it's about whose windows got shattered last night or how somebody simply had a headache and couldn't fall asleep because the siren went on for four hours and it's about somebody's son who is in the trenches and they haven't heard from them for five days and they're worried it goes on and on and on and the the mixture of this seemingly normal things and things totally abnormal are really terrible they are simply terrible they are not normal and nobody should be used to them. And this is something that I want to bring into the show. I don't always want to have, say, spokesperson of the Commander Center, Pivdin, Natalia Hominyuk, who is an excellent officer and will give you great analysis, the Minister of Defense. But sometimes it would be somebody who just managed to escape Mariupol and is living in Odessa now and has a story. And that will give you a better feeling and understanding of the war than trying to figure out whether part of a village was passed over from one side to another. You could have gone to a lot of different organizations and weren't going to be starting this rebrand to WBHG News. This is the first time I'm saying this out loud to our audience. With that said, why us? Why Malcontent News? You could have gone to a lot of different places. I'm still working for a lot of other news organizations. I'm, I've been writing and doing podcasts and doing TV and videos and films now for Byline. I'm still working for Euromaidan Press. I'm excited about this program because it will give me the opportunity to introduce a new audience and a new segment to the reality of the war here in Ukraine, and also of the accuracy of your reports that I've read through. And I can tell that the reporting is being taken very seriously. Also because I can combine all of the other projects with my podcasting, broadcasting, and reporting. So I will be bringing your stories, not just from Odessa, I will be going in two weeks to Kherson, and you'll get my stories. We will be going together to Donbass. We will be going to Kharkov, and you'll get an opportunity to speak to people around the country. And that's something that appeals to me. One thing for our audience, Zarina is going to be providing all of this amazing news and information and perspectives and interviews three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And we are going to continue with the coverage that you are used to, the battlefield analysis, and that will be going on six days a week. Zanin and I are still working on finalizing that person. That's right. So uh, to give you a little bit more detail on my segment of the podcast, uh, there will be ideally three 10-minute stories for each podcast. There will be combine analysis, interviews, or anything that is happening in different spheres of life. And that would be military, political, economy, industrial, agricultural, trade aspects of life during the war, and of course, cultural and environmental, because it's all part of the one big picture here. I know that I'm excited because once we bring this person on, the number of journalists that we'll have on the ground in Ukraine will now grow to four. We have you, we have Katie, we have Oscar, and we will have a fourth person. So I'm very excited that we are increasing our footprint within Ukraine so that we have the Ukrainian 
perspective. You and I have talked about the future of the show and different topics and different ideas. And, and I've reached out to you on a couple of things been in the news. What's Ukraine feel about this? Because I don't want to provide the Western filter. Like I, and I know I said I want to say the West. And I just said it, but I'm going to leave it in the podcast, darn it. I don't want to leave the outside of Ukraine perspective. And we'll be doing a lot more of that. And of course, you will be leading this in providing Ukrainian voices and Ukrainian aligned voices, subject matter experts who may not be Ukrainian, they may be from the United States or the UK or Moldova or other countries, but are experts on what is happening in Ukraine. Yes, absolutely. And all variety of voices are important. Like it's important to differentiate between Ukrainians who are here, who were born and raised here, who are Ukrainian citizens and natives. And this is important. We can bring it, we can connect, and we can bring these voices through to the outside audience. That's how I see our role. Zarina, I'm so excited to have you join the team. And I know our audience is looking forward to the amazing content that you're going to bring. And with that said, I am going to turn the show over to Zarina because she has a couple of amazing interviews. And now we're going to go to our studio in Odessa. I'm so honored to present Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, former commander, NATO Allied Land Command and Commanding General, United States Army Europe. Today, we will start our new podcast with figuring out the strategic thinking as we're talking about the Russian war of aggression in Ukraine. We will also touch upon the counteroffensive, which is on everybody's mind, and get the overall assessment of the situation. How would you assess the current status of the war? Can you provide an overview of the military capabilities of both the Russian and Ukrainian armies at the current moment? And speak a little bit about the Ukrainian strengths and weaknesses as well on land, sea, and air. So, uh, Zarina, thank you, and, and I'm honored to be on your podcast. Uh, first of all, um, of, of course, Ukraine has suffered casualties. There's been losses. Uh, Ukrainian civilians are under risk of a missile attack every day somewhere. There's still going to be tough fighting ahead. We have to be uh, candid about that. Having said that, I see Ukraine having the initiative in every aspect of this war. I, I don't see any positive outcome for Russia. I see all the positives trending in favor of Ukraine and that Ukraine should be able to achieve victory, which means uh, ejection of Russia back to the 1991 boundary. I believe that this is the objective of you know, President Zelensky. Uh, and, and I believe that that's what the counteroffensive is intended to do. And of course, the decisive terrain of the war is Crimea. Once Crimea is liberated, uh, Russia doesn't care about Donbass, except that it gave them the land bridge from Rostov down to Crimea. Once Crimea has been liberated, then uh, I think the whole thing is over. And I think also Ukraine knows that they cannot accept Russia remaining in control of Crimea after any sort of negotiated settlement, because then it's just a matter of time before Russia comes back. Uh, and it would be very difficult for Ukraine to rebuild its economy if the Russian forces occupying Crimea are able to block access in Azov Sea, uh, as well as disrupt uh, Kherson and Mykolaiv and Odessa. So that's at the strategic level. Of course, a lot of this does depend on the United States, Germany, UK, other countries continuing to support Ukraine. And I'm proud of what we all have done, but my president has stopped short saying we want Ukraine to win. And there still are too many voices from around Europe and in the US to talk about there's no way Russia can be defeated. We want to help Ukraine get to the best negotiating position. I think this is not not the right approach. I think we should be we should realize it's in our interest that Ukraine wins uh, as well as Ukraine's best 
interests. So we need to act like that to provide the capabilities that are needed. Now, to the specific uh, question of the counteroffensive itself, don't think of just what's happening on the ground in the in the direction of Bakhmut or Zaporizhia and uh, all these other towns we keep hearing about where people are incredible courage by Ukrainian soldiers fighting through these minefields. It's, I mean, this is going to be legendary for centuries. People are going to be talking about this. But that's only a part of the counteroffensive. A counteroffensive includes air, maritime, drone strikes. It includes uh, sabotage behind Russian lines, countering Russian disinformation. There's so many things that are happening that are making it very, very difficult for the Russian side. This is all part of the counteroffensive to put pressure on Russia to keep the initiative and force them to have to react to what Ukraine is doing. I think that the Ukrainian general staff does a very good job. Uh, the, I trust their judgment, how to fight, where they're fighting, how they're doing it. I think they're making the best out of what they have. And they recognize, especially after the Wagner mutiny and the public assassination of Prigozhin, they recognize that the Russian command structure, the, the hierarchy from the defense minister on down, none of those people trust each other. And, and they also see that Putin values loyalty more than competence. You know, all the most effective Russian generals are either dead or in jail or have been sacked. And fortunately for Ukraine, Shoigu and Gerasimov remain in their post. And I think that the Ukrainian journalist staff will exploit this. Last, last two things I'll mention, and then I'll turn it back to you. To, to keep in mind, it is can uh, get caught up in the day-to-day -day fighting, oh my gosh, more casualties or another missile strike on uh, Kharkiv or Odessa or somewhere. After almost 19 months, Russia has not been able to destroy not one train or convoy bringing equipment or ammunition from Poland. That's incredible. I mean, that lifeline, the Russians don't have the ability to stop it. That That's a tribute to Ukrainian air defense. It's a tribute to the uh, railway system of Ukraine, and it also shows a weakness on the Russian side. At the same time, the Russians are asking North Korea for ammunition. I mean, that tells you what terrible condition Russia's uh, defense industry is in, that they're having to ask North Korea for ammunition. Uh, and, they're, and they're trying to recruit Cubans to come fight in the war because they have serious manpower problems. I was in Georgia in uh, Tbilisi the last uh, four days. I saw hundreds of Russian cars, hundreds of Russian military age males that are hiding in Georgia because they do not want to go in the army. Uh, they're not pro-Ukraine, but they are not willing to join the Russian army and go fight against Ukraine. These are the kind of indicators I look at that give me reason to be very optimistic. This is fantastic to have this strategic thinking and overall picture because so often we are getting the noise and getting lost in the names of the little towns that are being liberated and then recaptured and liberated again. And I think it is critical to have this clarity of view and seeing the whole world, like you just mentioned the Cubans, or we know that today uh, allegedly a drone or part of a drone was found in Romania. And to see the whole picture, uh, including the delivery of the weapons continuous, which I have seen when you pass from Poland to Ukraine, you see them. And it is a very beautiful view indeed. Well, speaking of the supplies, I know that everybody always wants to know about F-16. And in fairness, it's a very important issue. And the air might be the deciding factor in the course of the war. Uh, what would you say about F-16s? So, of course, this is a decision that should have been made a year and a half ago. I'm glad that finally the president has agreed. But it, that means it's still going to be a few months before we start seeing the actual effect. Ukrainian pilots will be very good. But it's, it's, it's a fact. It's going to take some time to become proficient, but also to figure out how do you employ them in, in combat? Uh, there is no magic weapon. There is no airplane, no missile, no tank, no nothing that is magic, okay? And so it, it really is about the skill of the people operating the equipment 
and how it is employed in the battle. And it is also about, do you have the logistics to keep it going, the maintenance and, and so on? What I think we want to talk about, or what I would recommend talking about, and for people to focus on, is how does Ukraine win? And as I said earlier, I, I believe that Crimea is the decisive terrain of this war. The way, as I look at the map, of course, the Ukrainian general staff does a very, very good job of protecting information. I don't know the plan. I should not know the plan. I'm not entitled to know the plan. If I know the plan, the Russians know the plan. So I'm doing some, this is my own professional assessment. But when I think about how do you liberate Crimea, start by isolating it, right? And I think that's what the ground offensive is trying to do right now is to eventually uh, separate Crimea from where the land bridge is. And of course, Ukraine is continuing to attack the Kerch Bridge. And I think that that thing is going to uh, undergo massive uh, damage here in the coming weeks. That's, first of all, isolating it. And, and Ukraine is also doing a very good job of using Navy drones, small boats with no sailors, but they're able to go uh, threaten the Black Sea Fleet, which is really uh, remarkable how they're doing this. Fleet is is not able to do much more than launch uh, cruise missiles against uh, apartment buildings. The second thing you have to do is make it untenable for Russian forces. Hit Sevastopol, hit Saki, hit Zhankoi, uh, hit all the places inside Crimea where the Russians have Navy, Air Force, Army logistics headquarters so that they can't stay there. I mean, everybody knows where everything is. There's no mystery where sub, where the Black Sea Fleet is. There's no mystery about the air base at Saki. Ukraine needs the ability to hit those places. And this is why I think, you know, advocating for long-range precision weapons that can go 300, 400, 500 kilometers that could hit Sevastopol. I mean, if you had two or three hits a day in inside the port, the Black Sea Fleet would have to leave. They, they can't sit there. If their maintenance facilities, the fuel places are all getting destroyed. I think this is part of the plan to use long-range weapons to make it untenable. And of course, as the ground offensive gets closer and closer, then you have more weapons that can be brought up, HIMARS, for example, or or other weapons that can reach the the critical places on Crimea. As I think about it, that's how I would approach this. And then of course, you're going to continue to see like commando raids. I think there is sabotage happening almost every day somewhere in Crimea. So this constant pressure so that the Russians realize they can't stay there. And these are all excellent, excellent points. And I just wish that everybody just go point by point and soon we will see uh, Crimea liberated. But we also know that there is this complicated area of information warfare. And part of what's being used are narratives that are very hard to fight is the simplified version of counteroffensive where the expectations were set unrealistically based on the successes in Kherson and Kharkov last year. Uh, and yeah. everybody expected the Ukrainian army just to slice through the Russian defenses and repeat uh, what happened. And the second narrative, there was no actual counteroffensive move in Kyiv, Chernihiv, and Sumy Oblast, but that is not true. There was a lot of work, and it is all a part of the campaign, which could be described as counteroffensive. And as a result, journalists in the West repeat the simplified narratives, and we lose the complexity. And because of unrealistic expectations, there is a disappointment. Yeah. How would you address that? That's an excellent point. You will remember there was all these headlines about the spring offensive. Well, where, where did spring come from? Nobody from the general staff ever said, no, and nobody from the general staff would say, we're going to launch a biggest offensive in the spring. I mean, this was somebody's creation called, they got traction. And unfortunately, nobody from the government ever shot it down, ever said, hey, stop. There is no spring offensive. The offensive will start when General Zeluzhny tells President Zelensky, we're ready to go. So I think this is where the government has a responsibility to find the balance between 
protecting information, which is correct, but also making sure you've got your own narrative that's out there. That balance. And uh, in the U.S., sometimes we get it right. Sometimes we get it wrong. But understanding information space, because you're right, there were unrealistic expectations. I, I had thought things would go faster, mainly not because of any Ukrainian problem, but because I thought that my government would have already finally said, we're going to provide this, this, and this. And I obviously was wrong on that. But I think you, you're doing a great service here in this information domain by, you know, providing an opportunity like this to explain to your listeners, you know, the counteroffensive is not just minefields and tanks. It's shutting down all, all of Russia's airports night after night after night. They're having to cancel flights. That is a huge disruption to the economy as well as people, making them realize, oh my gosh, what's going on here? Or to go after Russia's logistical infrastructure, whether it's you know oil produ gas production or ammunition or uh, maintenance facilities, this is all part of it. In the U.S., we use the phrase, actually in NATO, we use the phrase multi-domain operations. That means air, land, sea, special forces, information, cyber, that Ukraine is doing, we talk about it, Ukraine is doing multi-domain operations. The counteroffensive is multi-domain. You mentioned the operational security, and we talked about it before, how important it is and why the spring counteroffensive announcement was never possible, because that couldn't be in the information space. There's a lot of questions that I get about the perceived lack of transparency on the casualty numbers. And we also know uh, that the morale, as you have just mentioned, is incredibly important. What about this criticism about the lack of transparency? How would you answer that? So this is also an important question. And you know, in the U.S., Every single soldier that's killed or whatever happens to them, that's public record. And there's a very public return of the remains back to the U.S. And, you know, we've realized that at the end of the day, it's always best that we are transparent about our losses. That was not in the same situation that Ukraine is in now, where Ukraine is facing Russia. Uh, and, and so I can understand why there is hesitancy to uh, announce how many Ukrainian soldiers have been killed, how many have been wounded, how many tanks have been lost, whatever. this I can understand that. The first priority for transparency, of course, is that no family should wonder what happened to their soldier. Every family. This is such an important part of families understanding if, if their soldier was killed or wounded or captured or, or whatever. My sense is that that's what Ukraine, the army is doing, that families absolutely know. Now, but this is a decision that, you know, the general staff will have to make a recommendation to the president and to your new defense minister about how do you have transparency on where you are uh, without giving the Russians some sort of advantage. I, and I'm sure they will figure out a way to do this. You know, soldiers, soldiers will do incredible stuff as long as they know that their family is going to be taken care of if something happens to them. If they know they will not be left to rot in the field somewhere. Uh, and if they know that their government is doing everything they can to help keep them alive. Best possible medical care, bring them out if they're wounded. Soldiers will do anything. And so I think soldiers will have confidence if they know that their government is being completely transparent, accounting for casualties, not saying the number's lower than it really is, because then soldiers start, I mean, that begins to eat at them a little bit. What good things do you see happening for Ukraine in the nearest future? Uh, well, let me say it this way. We, we know from history, that war is a test of will and a test of logistics. The Russian logistics system is in terrible shape. That's why they're having to ask North Korea for ammunition. They're having to go find soldiers from Cuba or recent immigrants to force them to join the army uh, while other Russians are hiding in Georgia and other places like that. So uh, that tells me that the uh, Russians do not have the same will as Ukrainian people and Ukrainian soldiers, their logistics are getting worse every week, while Ukraine's logistical situation gets a little better every week. It's not enough. I know that. There's not enough ammunition. There's not enough equipment. The key here for me is that it's, it's trending up for Ukraine and it's trending down for Russia. Well, thank you so much. I think the analysis is so important, and I can't thank you enough for your time and expertise, Ben. Thank you very much. Serena, thank you, and good luck with your podcast. Much appreciated.
You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Phil Itner. I know Phil for almost 30 years in the capacity of a journalist, foreign uh, correspondent. We worked briefly together for CBS News. Mm -hmm. And then Phil started on the whole big career of a war journalist. Could you please tell us what wars did you report from? Well, before 9-11, I went down to Dagestan. Uh, I didn't go into Chechnya proper, but I, that was my first kind of uh, experience with militaries and wars. I was in Afghanistan five, five days after 9-11, spent the better part of the next two decades covering war. So uh, from Afghanistan to Iraq uh, to the conflict in the Middle East, uh, the West Bank, Gaza, Lebanon, we're in Syria, uh, Libya, uh, Georgia in 2008, now Ukraine. And hopefully this will be my last war. I was CBS for roughly 15, 20 years. Then I was Voice of America. I was bureau chief in Islamabad and Kabul. And then I freelanced in London for Sky News and Fox News. One thing that I would like to address here are the mistakes or sometimes misconceptions or myths that foreign correspondents make in the war zones. Mm -hmm. Could you please speak uh, about it? First, I, I should say that I have a real love for Ukraine. And I've been coming to Ukraine for 22 years. I was on Maidan in 2014, for example. Ukraine is very important to me. I have a real love for the place. And I knew that the international news um, News Corps uh, would um, come here and do this the way they always do, which is very superficial and which is aimed at um, getting an audience, getting clicks or getting views or getting uh, ratings if you're the, you know, in television. Knowing how the International Press Corps was going to cover this war, I decided to strike out on my own. My prediction was correct. News organizations have been um, have been cutting on their staff, cutting back, cutting back, cutting back. And anything that isn't essential uh, has been neglected. And while those of us who pay attention to this part of the world knew that, that a major conflict was very possible, most news organizations had been diminishing their staff. Uh, and so they have a, a lack of understanding because you can't cover this part of the world um, haphazardly. You can't do it halfway. This is a very complex part of the world with a lot of difficult uh, things beneath the surface. And if you don't study it extensively, you're not going to do it justice. And I've been seeing that in the press corps, is that they're going to the front lines. They're going to the stuff that's going to get them the attention that will get them the views. And it's kind of all, all comes down to the bottom line of finances because their bosses in New York or London are wanting, you know, the stuff that's going to draw attention to it. So they go to what's called in the in the business the bang bang. Go to the go to the sexy shots, go to where things are exploding, because that's gonna draw an audience. Or go to a refugee center or go to a hospital. The things that are very um, visceral and on the surface that'll draw attention. My contention is that that's doing a disservice to Ukraine and to the understanding of what this war is truly about. Because you cannot explain this war in the standard two minutes and 30 seconds that you get in a nightly evening news package report. Or, you know, you know a minute to three minutes on a, on a cable network. This is not just some headline where it's like, um, you know, Russian forces have taken this town or Ukrainian forces have taken that town. You can do the daily horse race sort of thing, but it's not doing justice to the, the complexity of this country and understanding the centuries that have led to where we are today, because that's, that's complex and it's not easily wrapped up in a minute or two. So are you saying that number one mistake uh, for the big networks is not to have their offices established in Kyiv? 
Yeah, or, or, you know, or not to have people who speak the language or who have been coming to this part of the world for an extended period of time. Um, they don't have that resource because they didn't put the money into it because it was seen as secondary to what's happening in, for example, North Africa or in the Middle East, especially for the Americans, but also I would say for most English-speaking news outlets, including the British. I do think that the International Press Corps has done a really shoddy job, a really bad job of explaining to their audiences what's happening here. I've heard people regurgitate the line that it's about NATO expansion. I've heard people talk about a threat to, to Russia's uh, you know, security status. Not understanding that Tsar Shevchenko was thrown in jail in 1846 because he wrote a poem in Ukrainian. And to my knowledge, NATO didn't exist in 1846. So it's this kind of understanding of the depth of, of, of the history of Ukraine and, and the colonization by the Russians. Some people don't even recognize that this is a colonial war or a war of empire. But I've seen journalists come here and treat it like any other war, like it's Libya or like it's Syria or even Iraq and Afghanistan. This war is so much bigger than any war I've ever covered. This is, the mo this is easily the most historically important war that I will cover in my lifetime because, you know, God forbid, we go, the only other possibilities that the West goes to war with China. Um, but saving that, this is enormously important historically, this war. More, more important than Iraq or Afghanistan. And I've seen guys running around here as if it is Iraq or Afghanistan without understanding just how important and how significant this war is. And if they don't understand, how are they conveying that to their audiences? And I would say that they're not. Well, exactly. And when you mention in um, certain narratives that uh, even major publications in the West are repeating, mm -hmm. uh, reflecting on the Kremlin narratives and sometimes just parroting them yeah. and then repeating them again and again uh, as an echo chamber. Uh, why do you think this happened? I'm glad you asked me that question because it's also another thing that bothers me a whole lot. I think there is a mentality about this war that can't get out of the box of the idea that Russia is this um, is a superpower or is, is a remnant of a superpower. And there's no concept that, yes, the Ukrainians can beat the Russians. Ukraine, not only do I believe that it can, but I believe Ukraine will win this war. In many ways, I think it already has. You know, because there will be a country called Ukraine after this war ends, and that's something that Moscow wanted to destroy. But journalists, not just journalists, but I also think it's, it's you know, in a number of different fields, they can't wrap their heads around the idea that Russia is not this massive beast of a power. That there's there's a worldview that says the great Russian bear is is really formidable and think of the legacy of World War II, and, which was a Soviet Union conflict, by the way. It wasn't Russia. It was Ukraine and Georgia and the Baltic states that fought against Nazi Germany. So it wasn't just Russia. Um, but there's this, this thing that people can't get out of the box in their head that Russia is a major, massive power that is so insurmountable and has just endless resources and is so great and mighty. Well, We've been, we see that that's not true, but they can't, because it's so entrenched in their minds, you're asking people to, to change, you know, their perception of, of what Russia is on the global stage, and they can't seem to do it. And it's incredibly frustrating, which is why I think they're so susceptible to Russian propaganda. And in addition to that, the Russians are just really, really good at propaganda, and they know exactly how to get into people's heads. And unfortunately, journalists are no better than, you know, any other sector oftentimes. They're as susceptible to propaganda as anybody else. I agree with you. And this is what we are going to address uh, in this podcast interviews and analysis, thinking conceptually, going in depth uh, through different angles and bringing in Ukrainian voices, Ukrainian experts, Ukrainian analysts, uh, Ukrainian public figures, different voices to give uh, the sense of complexity and richness that this country has to offer. And something that is on everybody's mind is counteroffensive. And we see 
uh, the coverage in the Western media, which does not make any of us based here going to the front line happy. I think part of it, Phil, is not being based near front lines and not spending enough time there because anybody, our colleagues who do regular visits to the front line can see how much of a mining problem Ukrainian troops have before they can proceed anywhere mm. with the equipment that is being sent by the West. Uh, the fields and the roads and any land that is to be taken needs to be demined. Otherwise, the progress is impossible. Yeah. And it's very rarely being uh, talked about. There are also the lines of defense that the Russians were able to build while the West was negotiating the delivery of the weapons. Mm -hmm. When they speak of the speed or lack of thereof of counteroffensive, um, the Western journalists make a lot of mistakes. Uh, why do you think it happens and what are the major mistakes, do you think? Well, I think there was an expectation because of what happened last summer with Kharkiv and Kherson. I think there was an expectation because of the sheer uh, level of uh, equipment and training that was being given to the Ukrainian uh, armed forces. But those of us who have been here and have been talking to Ukrainians, both in uniform and out, uh, about this topic was... Um, that you know, don't expect something flashy. I mean, President Zelensky himself said this isn't a movie. The Ukrainians were never going to just use up their soldiers by throwing them in in massive, huge battles that were going to cost them, you know, massive amounts of, of of casualties. I think the lack of air power is is also another major issue. We're asking the Ukrainians to fight a war in a way that NATO would never fight. NATO, the first thing NATO does is it controls the skies. I've seen U.S. forces uh, at war. The very first thing is you control the sky because it's, it changes everything. And we're asking the Ukrainians to do um, what NATO would do without giving all the assets that they really need. That is a decision that was made in the Pentagon and in the White House and in all the various capitals and armed forces around NATO. Um, and there's a lot of complexity and reason for why that all happened. But at the end of the day, there's also the messaging that comes from the press corps. And the press corps has also lined up expectations that are unrealistic. I am convinced that Ukraine is going to be, not only is going to win this war by the sheer fact of surviving and there being a country called Ukraine after all this, but I also think that they will be effective on the battlefield. And I have no doubt that they will regain uh, much of the territory that Russia stole, including uh, territory that was taken in 2014, I think Crimea is still very much a possibility. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Zarina. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.